0: doesn't matter how much you change the world. I mean, we're all, this podcast is changing the world. Someone's going to listen to this and go, you know what? I'm going to change the way I run my classroom now. I'm going to let the kids sit where they want. Like,
1: done. Achieved. You know, like, big tick. Something's changed, so you've changed the world a little bit. Awesome, yeah. So, yeah, Gavin, listening to your story, I was like, I heard you sort of traveled the world. You sort of taught in many different countries. Then you came to Australia. You started in Lakemba, um, and you are sort of teaching in one of the um islamic schools for like 10 years and then um did you then become the principal of the school that you're now working at tell me about that transition or give us like a brief sort of uh, run through on your story i guess it
0: all started when the internet first came out Uh, i was living uh, i'm from a small village back in england and you know my friend had a laptop i'd never really seen a laptop before and uh, we were studying computer science i think we were about you know 14 15 and he was like, check this out. Uh, you can look up anything you want, and it was Ask Jeeves at the time, which is an old search engine. Have you not heard of it? You said Ask Jeeves, this man, um, about things, and he would give you the answer. Now, you know, it wasn't as good as today, but I remember thinking, you know, I wonder what I, I wonder what it's I wonder what it's like in Tokyo, and I wonder what it's like to live in Tokyo. So I was just typing into this search engine, you know. Tokyo and I thought wow my god look at this place this is insane look how busy it is look at the people okay look at, look at the sky rises look at the you know the buildings and uh I got into this wormhole uh you know of, like looking up lots and lots of places and i suddenly going oh you know it's all good and well seeing it on the screen but I I want to see it with my own eyes actually I want to smell the air and talk to the people and taste the food and And so I got addicted to that and got on this epic journey of going, okay, well, you know, I I want to see as much of that as I possibly can before, you know, before I'm unable to walk. Uh, And I was young at the time. So uh, I started on that journey. And I used to be a football player. So I used to want to be a football player for my, you know, as my career. And so I had that under my wing that I could just play football. So I moved to France. I played football in France for a couple of years and I was on a pair there for a little boy and a little girl. Uh, And then I lived in Spain, in Gibraltar. Then I came home for a little bit of time. And then I discovered teaching, became a teacher, did a degree in teaching. And then that really opened up this kind of worldwide, um, you know, access to to jobs all over the world then. So, you know, I'll never forget, I went to Austria for a few weeks and my mum called me saying, you know, when are you coming home? I said, uh, I'm on the train to China. I've got the Trans-Siberian Express and it could be a while. <laughs> and I got the Trans-Siberian Express all the way across Russia and through Mongolia and ended up in Beijing and then I don't know just saw this world which was just amazing and I wanted to see all of it so I just ended up traveling as much as I possibly could until I ran out of money and then i working along the way um living a frugal lifestyle as you, as it were. Well, then, you know, I, I came to Australia and uh, I worked uh, in this school back in my hometown for a while. I learned the Quran. I learned how to speak Arabic a little bit, just uh, you know, listening to the sheikh talking in class. And uh, you know, I went to the interview here in Australia, and uh, the lady said, uh, "You know, hello." Um, I said, Salaamu alaikum, arahmatullahi wa, wa barakatuh." She said, "Masha'allah, you speak Arabic?" And I said, "Look, I don't want to give you a, a false sense of hope. I don't." but I do know the Quran. Uh, I can recite it, but I don't know what it means. And she said, you've got the job. Anyone with that kind of dedication has got the job here. And she just gave me the job. And so um, I took the job in this Muslim school over in Lakemba. And I loved it. I was working with refugees from Syria and Afghanistan and, and Iran, and I just was amazing. So i worked there for 10 years, and then I discovered Montessori, did a Montessori degree, and then became a Montessori teacher, and then Bob's your uncle. Now I'm a Montessori principal. I'm Actually, just yesterday, i been asked to be the Montessori ambassador for Australia so that's the whole thing in a nutshell and here we are in this interview so uh, I guess that's a brief synopsis.
1: Major congratulations. Um, What pulled you towards you know Islam and towards the Quran because you spent 10 years sort of teaching that and you learnt a bit about it in your hometown. What pulled you towards that culture?
0: Well um, nothing really. My hometown is predominantly Muslim, so we have a lot of Pakistanis in my hometown, and Britain is a very multicultural country, as you know, so, you know, in my town it happens to be we have a lot of Pakistani uh, children in schools, and so, you know, I was exposed to that, and when I came to Australia, you know, I won't lie to you, I just thought, okay, what have I got? (laughs) What have I got in my artillery here that can get me a job as quick as possible, so I was looking at the jobs, and I thought, ooh, there's a job in a Muslim school, I've worked in a Muslim school. Maybe I'll apply for that. So I went and got this job. And then um, I got addicted to working there, I must say, because what happened was this. A lot of children were coming as refugees from, from war-torn countries in the Middle East. You know, there were wars in Iraq at the time and Afghanistan, and, and there were, you know, there was an uprising in some of the Middle Eastern countries, and those people were were leaving, and they were ending up at our school. And what was interesting was they'd been through these really harrowing uh situations. And I won't, you know, I don't want to dampen the day. But some of them were horrendously bad. Like you can't even believe how bad they were. You know, there were families whose boat had sank on the way from Indonesia to Australia, and dad was holding on to all the kids, but couldn't hold them all and had to let go of one and then watch them. You know, just absolutely terrifying stories. Then these gentleman entered my class. And uh, they would come to the door and say, hello, good morning, I'm your teacher. And they'd be like, hello, really beautiful, as every child is. And I'd say, so tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, where have you come from? How did you end up here? And then they'd just say this horrendous story as if, as if it was just something like buying a pair of socks or going to a cafe. It was just something that happened. And I would be heartbroken about that. And then I would see this racism around the world about refugees and this, you know, don't let them into our country and they're taking away our jobs and they, you know, all this stuff. And I thought, if only we knew, if only we actually knew what they were going through or what they'd been through, maybe we'd actually say, you know what, goodness me, let's have some humanity here. Like that's horrendous. You're a child. You're my child. You're everyone's child. So I started to listen to their stories and they were actually finding this kind of refuge in telling the stories to the class. And we were all in the same boat, you know, it all had troubles We'd all come from different situations where we'd have problems and some were worse than others, obviously. But what I realized was we all had something to learn from each other. That it wasn't me, the teacher at the front, saying, hello, I know everything. I'm the oracle because I'm a teacher. You're a student. You listen to me and you'll pass an exam and then you'll be smart and I'm doing my job. It wasn't that. I said, you know what, this is ridiculous. I have no idea what these kids have been through. I don't know about Iran or Iraq or Syria or Libya or Lebanon. I just don't know. I've not been there. You tell me. So they would they would then become the teacher and we'd all sit there in awe me and all the other students going, oh my goodness I didn't know that. I didn't know that's the plank you had to go through to get here And it was a 50/50. suddenly we were all the teacher and we were all learning from each other and it was amazing. They found this amazing um, this sense of you know liberation that could suddenly f- they were free to tell their story. And then I took it on myself to tell those stories, pay them forward, and say, you know what? I'm going to make sure other people hear about that. And so, whenever I heard someone saying, "Oh, you know, what about refugees coming to this country?" I'd say, "Let me just tell you a little story about a little boy I know." And they'd say, "Oh, you know, I didn't realize. I didn't realize it was like that." And we change their perspective. And I think when we understand what people are going through, and that we're all equal, and we're all human, and it's everyone's children, and you know, we're all the same, then we sometimes we we have this empathy and understanding. Suddenly, we have this. This, you know, brings us together and has this level of kind of equilibrium where we go, okay, you know what, that's that's out of order, yes. Um, And then just so happens that I was running this class like this. And it wasn't all about hardship and going through turmoil. It was about learning about culture and food and religion and everyone would bring their own perspective. And uh, it just so happened that the Board of Studies, the inspectors came to school, the dreaded inspectors and they Happened to come to my class, and the lady was sitting in my class. She was sitting in the corner with a notepad, and I was teaching. I was, oh, god! And anyway, I thought, I'm not going to change anything. Why should I? Like, I'm just going to run the class like I like to run it. I'm going to give the kids agency. They're going to teach, I'm going to teach, and we're going to have. Anyway, at the end of the day, she said, Goodness me, that was brilliant. And she said, What was brilliant? She said, Well, you know, it was brilliant that everyone was engaged and they all had a saying, a voice, and it was all you know, all this together. And I said, thank you for saying that. And she said, are you a Montessori teacher? And I said, no, what's Montessori? Is that a religion or a cult? Is it a cult? And she said, no, no, it's not a cult. But I think you are a Montessori teacher, but you have no idea. I suggest you go look at a Montessori school. So I went to have a look at one. And then I was, that was it. I was gone, sold. I was like, wow, this is this is unbelievable. I'm going all in. So I did a degree and now, you know, I went into Montessori and and here we are but the, the islamic school was so beautiful because you got to feel that you were making such a big difference in, in the lives of those children and you know there's a little boy i'll never forget and i won't say his name on on air but uh, he came to my class and he he was a little shy little boy from pakistan and he went to, to year six and he graduated and he did a speech in the graduation ceremony and he i've printed it out somewhere i can't remember where it is but he said you know, when I came to this class, I felt like nothing, and I'm leaving as if I couldn't achieve anything. Thank you to all of my peers, and thank you to Gavin. And it was it was the fact that he thanked the class because we were all in this together rather than saying thank you to my teacher. It was thanks to everyone. And uh, we all cried. We all cried. And uh, I wrote a book about him, actually. I wrote a children's book, and I made him the main character without him knowing. Uh, and I read it to him online, and he was, you know, blown away. And it's just... You know, I'm talking a lot, but I think that the the idea about education is that it needs to be a two-way street. You have a lot to learn from those children, you know, a lot to learn, not just educationally. They show us how to laugh. They show us how to be confident. They show us how to try. They show us about resilience, all the things that we forget as adults. Oh, no, I could never never do that. Children just go, well, I'll do that. I don't care. I'll, I'll give it a go. Oh i fallen over and, you know, grazed my face. Oh, so well, like, never mind, I'll get up and have another try. As adults, we forget to do those things, don't we? Like, oh, no, no, I can't possibly try something new. So, you know, I think there's a lot to learn there from students. And I think that when we move towards that, we'll have a different, uh, a different world, as it were.
1: Yeah, because thinking back to high school, all the teachers that I clearly remember were the teachers that sort of gave me the ability to speak and sort of share my thoughts and they curious to hear my opinion on things. And those are the teachers I really gravitated towards because I remember um, we had a history class and I think we didn't have a history teacher, so our deputy principal, Mr. Taylor, um, taught the class for two terms. And I remember we were talking about the Vietnam War and it was like, hey, Andy, like, tell us about your experience and what your parents went through. And one, I was shocked, I was like, wow, like he knows my name, he knows I'm Vietnamese and he's asking me to share my story and and talk about something that people don't usually ask about. And it was, it was like, it felt like a sense of empowerment. It felt like he really listened to me. It felt like someone cared and sort of wanted to hear my thoughts. And there were several teachers that did that. And those teachers really stood out and it really made a huge impact. Mm,
0: yeah, look, I mean, that's, that's a very important aspect of being a good teacher, as it were. I mean, there's teachers and there's teachers. Um, and, you know, teachers are bombarded with stuff, writing reports, writing curriculums, meetings, you name it, parents, uh, all of that stuff. But, you know, I've done a lot of teacher training workshops around the world. I'm here in Australia. And the one thing that I that I stand by is that the most important part of being a teacher is knowing your students, um, knowing what I call their hook. Like, what is their hook? You know, and so um, the more time you get to know your students, the more time that you get to understand what pushes their buttons and what their passions are. And, you know, your job as a teacher is to look at the curriculum and say, you know what? It says here, it says in the curriculum, the outcome says you will expose the children to different continents, right? now, there's seven continents, as you know, Right. But there's a prescribed curriculum that's already written. It's been in the curriculum for 10 years. And he says, teach the children Antarctica. And it's already pre-written. So lots of teachers go, well, it's already done for me. I'll just take Antarctica. And you say to the kids, and, you know, lots of children in school are be doing this this year, in year five. It's in the curriculum for year five. And saying hello, everybody. We're going to learn about Antarctica. Now, Antarctica is a wonderful place filled with ice and penguins and blue whales and krill. And this is the biodiversity. And the kids are like, well, this is good. You know, this is fun. But what? really should happen is this. The teacher should say, hey, now we're going to learn about continents. That's all I need to teach you. Continents, what it says in the curriculum. Now, I'm actually from Britain, so I'm going to teach you a little bit about Europe. I'm going to tell you a story about a time when I was in Europe, and I was in this street, and there was this you know, whatever. And the kids are like, oh my God, wow, my teacher. He doesn't live in the cupboard, actually. He's a real person. And you've got a photo, and you show them, this was me when I went to Versailles. And I'll tell you the story about Versailles. The kids are like, oh my God, he's a real human being with a real life and a real history and a real past. And look at the way he's talking, he's so passionate because he's from Europe. And then you say to the kids, okay. And so he's going to teach you about Europe now. I'm not going to teach you, but I've inspired you a little bit. Now, you can choose a continent. <laughs> choose one that you love for some reason, whether your dad's from there, you've been there on holiday, you've watched a movie or a document or whatever it is. Off you go, you've got a week. You can work in a team, you can work in a pair, you can work on your own. But in a week's time, we're going to meet and you're going to present to the class about what you have learned about your chosen continent and you're going to teach us. So all the kids go, oh my God, what? I get to choose, I get agency in this, I get a say. And you can say to the kids, and I don't, and if you want to really be la creme de la creme, you say to the kids, and I don't mind how you show me your research. It can be a play, a dance, a model." It can be a document. It can be a piece of art. You name it; it doesn't matter. As long as you learn about a continent, you do your research, and you can teach us. Then you've ticked all the boxes. So all the kids go away all excited. Oh my God! I'll work with you. Let's sit over there. You get the card. I'll get the scissors. And off they go. And you, as the teacher, you're free then, totally free. And what you do with that time is you observe your students and you look for leadership, confidence, communication, time management, resilience. You look for all those skills which are 21st century skills which you need in the world today. You know, if you have, if you didn't have the confidence to send me an email, we would never have this conversation. And if I didn't have the confidence to speak on camera, we'd never be doing this for your listeners. And so those skills, you can't teach them. You can't say, I'm going to teach you about being confident, guys. Let's all learn about being confident. Being confident is about trying you have to try, and you have to fail and try again. You get confident because it builds up over time. So when you say to the kids, "Off you go," you know uh, they. Oh my God, what? I get to. Are you saying that I can do what I want? You say, "Look, you can do what you want within limitations. This is freedom, but within limits. You know, you can't climb out of the window and get an Uber to the city. That's not allowed. But you can use the card, the paper, the scissors. Sit on the floor, stand up, work in a group, work in a pair, work on your own. It's up to you. I don't mind." I'm busy observing, so don't disturb me. And I actually, I said to the kids, if you can see it in this room, it's a yes. If like you can see the scissors and you want to say, can I use the scissors? Don't ask me. The answer is yes. You want a card? Yes. You want to go to the toilet? Yes. You don't have to ask me. There are only seven, these kids. I even made a T-shirt and he said yes on the front. And I said to the kids, if you've got a question, look at my T-shirt. That's the answer. <laughs> it was really cool. Anyway, when you do that, like when you do that, you see this different It's hard for teachers because you have to let go a little bit. And a lot of teaching is all about control. You know, if you're quiet with your fingers on your lips and everyone's working with your heads down, then that's a good class. Well, that's not a good class. That's a failing class. That's a class who erode learning. A good class is one where the people are talking and you're learning from each other and there's debate and upset. And, you know, all those things are happening in the real world. If you go to Google, Wikipedia, Amazon, Airbnb's head offices, you don't see people sitting in silence with their heads down. You see people communicating and debating and talking and having meetings and standing up and on the telephone. And That's what we need to do with our education system, is turn it into 21st century. And so, uh, you know, that's what Montessori actually does, and that's why I was so attracted to it.
1: That's so cool. One thing I've noticed is, like, in every classroom, um, I've definitely felt like this, but, you know, there's always, like, one, two, three students that feel out of place. They're sort of you know, everyone's head down studying and they they just can't grasp what they're studying. Is it possible to create an environment where all 30 students are sort of at sort of their best and all 30 students are happy? Or are you always going to have one or two that are going to not fit into your style of teaching? Well, it goes back to what you said before about knowing your students,
0: right? So essentially there's lots of different types of learning so the kinesthetic, you know, while you're like hands-on or auditory, visual, you all know those. tax, you know, we, we know this research has come through for, for hundreds of years. But actually what's very important to know is that there are four types of learners that you need to know. And so, you know, sitting in pairs in rows facing the front, it doesn't suit everyone, of course. I don't know about you. I like to, if I, I've written lots of books and done lots of things, I like to be on my own, doors closed, you know, having some quiet music playing in the corner, my cat sitting over there, and I just like to get into it. And if someone disturbs me, then I'm out. Oh, I've lost it. You know, when I'm in the flow, I'm in the flow. And you need to know what types of learners sit in your class. And the, the way that you do that is you you do something called the prepared environment where there are four types of learners. There's an independent learner. They want to work on their own. They want to sit on their own. They don't want to talk. They don't want to communicate. someone just want to come in, work hard and go home. And they're actually... As an adult, you also have these same traits. And then there's something called a parallel learner. Two students who work together, they're best buddies, they want to talk and chat, but they're not necessarily the same academic level. So they use each other as a buffer. Hey, do you like my picture? I love your picture of a tortoise. you like my calculation, I think you've got the denominator wrong in that one. Oh, thanks for the help. And they just, they love to buffer each other and assist each other, but they're working on something completely different. It's like you or I, you know, together going to, you know, one of these remote working offices, you're building a website and I'm, you know, writing a new script for a play. But we're there together, we're having coffee and every few minutes we check in, how's it going? Good, how's it going with you? By the way, how's it going with your girlfriend at home? Pretty good, yeah. And back to the work. Those are those kids. And then you have these cooperative learners, and cooperative learners are learners who sit together in pairs, same academic level, they do the same thing at the same time, they've got the same piece of paper, the same same color, same word, same time, lacking confidence, the other person, if they both do it together, it doesn't matter if they get it wrong, because there's two of them to get it wrong, rather than one person getting it wrong on their own. And then you've got the last one, which is a collaborative learner, which is a big team, and it has a ringleader, and all the guys in the team are feeling really lost and don't have any navigation or independence, and the reading leader says, all right, guys, today we're going to build the volcano. Now, Thomas, you're going to go get the papier-mâché paper. You're going to get the glue. You get the toilet rolls. You get the card. Come back here in two minutes. We're going to start. And they, they bring it together. Now, the reason I tell you those four types of learners is, from a teaching perspective, and um, go back to your question, can you cater for everyone? Of course you can. You just need those spaces available, some tables on their own, facing a wall. Those, those independent learners, they do not want stimulation. If you face them into the class, they're like, Wow, look at all, look what he's doing. Look at the window. You know, they're just, everything's amazing and they get nothing done. But if you just sit them down and let them, you don't tell them where to sit. You just set up the space and you say you can sit where you want. And the kids just go to what suits them, as you would. And you just watch and you take notes saying, oh, look Tommy, he's an independent learner. Yep, Stephanie and uh, Thomas, oh, they're parallel learners. Look at them. Yep, they're doing that. And you know that. And when you know that, you know your students. And when you know your students, boom. Oh, everyone's skated for. So it takes a bit of time. It takes a bit of, uh, we, you know, it's a huge focus on observation. And I said this to parents, I just wrote a book actually about parenting, like, a, you know, hundred ways to be a Montessori parent, it's called The Potential of Every Child. And um, the first page, the first page is observe your child in their natural play and take notes of the traits they display. Quite often, we go to a barbecue with our kids and you go, you play with the kids over there. And me and the parents are going to go talk over here about something, the stock market or whatever it's going to be. And we don't watch them. And the kids come over and say, "But mom, you know, Thomas is pulling my skirt. And you say, oh, Thomas, I've told you not to do that. And Thomas is like, sorry. And he does it again. But actually, you don't know what's happening there. Maybe Thomas has got a problem with sharing or negotiation or, you know, something with time or resilience or something like that. But when you watch them play and you, and you objectively look and take notes and say, look, you know, he's struggling with sharing there. You can see that happening and you make a note of that. You can work on that. You can say, I'm going to work with little Tommy, my son, on how to share. i do that with him. And you can not out what it is that's happening. And then you can you can work together to solve those problems, because if you don't know what's happening, you know, you'll never have that, uh, that that view of what's actually occurring on the ground level. So there's that disconnect between observation and understanding what the children go through. And I think teachers don't have enough time for that. Parents are obviously push the time to, but once you know, it's like a, a someone's opened a golden window to the keys
1: to success. That's amazing, Gavin. And one thing I want to ask is, how do you maintain that energy and enthusiasm when so teaching so many kids? Because you're having to... St- understand and know each kid and probably, you know, every single child probably is dealing with their own problems as things going on at home and you're trying your best to listen and pull someone out of the shell. How do you maintain that energy day in, day out, all year round? Um,
0: me personally, I'm um, very fortunate that I found I found teaching early and I love it. Like, I, I love it. So um, it just comes naturally to me. You know, I just... Could do it all day, every day. I'm an extrovert, so I sap other people's energy, unfortunately. So if I'm with a load of introverts, they're all tired and I'm like, yay. So it's a bit sad for them. But with kids, they have an expendable amount of energy. You know what they're like? So I work really well with them. You know, it doesn't matter to me uh, how much, how tiring it is and how long it takes. But in terms of how do you have the time to know them all and get to understand them? It's all about setting them free. Because if you think about it, and I've been this teacher before, so I'm not calling out this as a bad teaching style, but if you're at the front all day as the oracle and you're saying, okay, we're going to learn about volcanoes today. And I'm going to tell you everything that you need to know. Last night, I went on Google and I read everything about volcanoes. This is what happens, what I did. And I'm going to tell you everything you need to know. And you, you you distribute this knowledge. You just, you know, it's just like, here you go. And the kids listen for an hour and you say open your textbook i mean we we both did this for sure open your textbook highlight the keywords you're going to read it together as a diagram on the board you're going to copy that diagram everybody well done okay now friday you're ask some questions about the containers. If you get them right then i look good you look good we're all good everyone's smart so that but you're occupied the entire time as the teacher because you're the showman at the front and actually what you're saying to the kids which sounds really sad but when you take that that approach to teaching, you're saying to the children, good morning, everybody. Today, you can only be as smart as me. And that's, that's really sad because, actually, there's children who are smarter than you, who will have more knowledge. I know seven-year-olds in my class. There's one seven-year-old in my class. He knows every breed of crab on Earth, their habitat, their prey, their predator, and all the diseases that could possibly kill them off. I can honestly tell you I do not know one breed of crab, not one. I know there's an orange one with the pincers. So if I wanted to teach crabs to him, I'd have to go on Google, do some research, and then teach him, and he'd say, you know what, Gav, I'm the expert here, not you. I know every crab there is. So what I should be doing is saying, I don't know everything about crabs. I do know some, I've discovered some really cool things. I'm going to tell them to you. And he'll say, Gavin, actually, I mean, I want to let him take over at that point. Why Why don't you run this? Now, if I know him... I won't even bother teaching that class. I'll say, today, children, on this table over here, this little boy will be teaching about crabs. And if you're interested, you can go to that table, and he'll be there all day. Now, he feels like, oh, my God, I'm the crab expert in here. I can't believe my teacher's letting me teach everyone. Kids go over, mentorship, leadership, collaboration, communication skills are all happening. But I'm free. I'm free as a teacher. I'm free to sit down one-on-one with children and say, hey, so tell me about that project you're doing on dinosaurs. What's your favorite dinosaur? It's like, actually, I don't like dinosaurs. And like, oh, God, okay, well, I'm not going to force that down your neck anymore. You know, and it's that. It's, it's, it's giving up that, that oracle position at the front of the class and letting that go. And as soon as you've got children who feel independent in your classroom, then you can do that because you can let them go with it with full confidence that so they're going to be learning. And uh, you can work one-on-one. You can get to know your kids. You can have that time with them. And that's what we want. I mean, the greatest gift you can give the children in your class is time. And that's the thing that we starve ourselves off the most. Hence, you telling me that the one time the deputy principal said, hey, could you tell us a bit about your opinion? You're like, wow, oh my God, I remember that. Imagine if that was every day, all day, from when you were six to when you were 16. Then you have a different aspect of what education looks like, a different viewpoint of that.
1: Gavin, what does your classroom look like? So do you start the class with, hello, good morning, and then so you sort of let everyone go ahead and do their own thing, sit where they want, and you have like a topic and then you share the topic and now they can sit in circles, someone can sit against the wall, but they will focus around that topic for the day. What does your classroom look like? Okay,
0: this is a really, really cool part because, you know, I, I do school tours a lot where families come in and they want to come to the school. Or they want to have some. I did a talk recently called Why Montessori. And it was about parents like, why should you even bother coming anywhere near this? Mm-hmm. And um, the, the beginning of the day is probably the, the most beautiful. Normal school starts at five past nine, right? In, in most schools on nine o'clock. But in my school, we start at 8:45. So the doors are open at 8:45, you come to school. Now between 8:45 and 9.05, that's when you get to just find your way as a student. You come in. You get your bag, you put it down, you get your stationery in a little pot, and every child has a diary. This is a really amazing bit, which is like parents go, oh, my God, I want that immediately. Now, if you imagine this, there's lots of lessons being taught throughout the week, but they're all small group lessons. So four kids are with me, 26 kids are working independently on all these things that are happening. So over there, these kids are doing a dinosaur project. They're writing a report. They're doing fractions. These kids are there reading in the library. And I've got four kids, and I'm teaching geometry to them. Okay, so something like this. And um, when I finish my geometry lesson, after about 20 minutes, I say, guys, pop it in your diary, and I need to see the, the follow-up work by Friday. So they've got three days to complete it. And they know over the next three days, at some point, they've got to allocate some time to finish that, right? So they write in their diary, geometry follow-up, Friday. And they know they've got to finish it. Because on Friday, we're going to be meeting again. So if you imagine this, in the morning, the kids come in and they filter into the classroom one by one and they find their spot. They go, mm, I'm going to sit on my own today. Or oh, I fancy working with a, in a two table with somebody else. I'm going to sit on a two table and wait for someone to come and sit with me. But then when the kids come in, you see this amazing magic happen where me and you are sitting. I've actually witnessed this. So me, I'm in the class and I overhear two seven-year-olds and they've got their diaries open. It's five to nine, 10 minutes till school starts. One kid says to the other child, hey are you free at 10 o'clock to finish the dinosaur project? And the other child says, actually, I've got a lesson at 10 o'clock on fractions with the teacher, but I'm free at 11 o'clock. So the other child says, okay, I'll meet you on the red table, you bring the card, I'll bring the scissors, put it in your diary. So you both writing in 11 o'clock, meeting with Stephanie, red table. And then you hear that working. So by 9.05, everybody has a diary for the full morning, full, they've got lessons with the teacher, independent work that planned the whole morning, that's executive functioning. And then you, and you're six. And you're six. And so 9.05, we ring a little bell. Ding, ding, ding. The kids all stop. We come in for a group. We sit in a circle. We talk about these, you know, the theme of the day, whether it's empathy or understanding, love, compassion. And teacher says, today I'll be looking for those students who are actually demonstrating empathy. This is what empathy looks like. Try your best today to be as empathetic as possible. And if you spot empathy... Make sure you make a note in your diary because at lunchtime we're going to meet I'm going to talk about what happened this morning. So all the kids go off, do their thing, start working. We pick them off to do little lessons with them throughout the morning. 12 o'clock we meet and we say, how was the morning? Did anyone spot empathy? And one child says, I spotted empathy. There was a Stephanie was crying because she lost her ruler, but Thomas went over and said, you okay? Would you like to use my ruler? And I said, wow, that's wonderful. How do you feel, Stephanie? She said, I feel supported. And the other child says, I feel, you know, and it's that. That's that's what a morning looks like. And it's beautiful because you don't miss the curriculum. Uh, everything's taught, but it's all on the child. And imagine that six-year-olds having that conversation. That's not fictional. That's, that's, that's really what happens.
1: That's so beautiful because, yeah, talking about emotions, I feel like that's something that I definitely missed out on and I had to learn at, like, an older age. Like, even little skills like reading. I didn't know how to read until, like, two or three years ago, like I used to read one word at a time. And then I learned that people read by taking snapshots of multiple words together. And I was like, wow, I did not know this is how you read. No wonder it's been taking me forever to read and I'm struggling to absorb books, little skills like that and emotions. Like I didn't like I've only recently gotten really sort of self-aware of sort of like ego, compassion, empathy, care, being able to listen all these things I've sort of learned just through life, but um, it's it's crazy how all these little skills. That's what you you're teaching now, yeah. Well, the, the
0: the reality is you're not teaching them; you're just giving them experiences so they can experience it on their own. You know, so things. will, for example, when I was at school, if I was talking to my best friend, the teacher would say, "You two are talking. That's your last warning. If you talk anymore, I'm going to separate you." But what actually should happen is the teacher should say, you do a talking and you're going to stay together. Because what you want to happen at that point is at the end of the lesson, the teacher says, so how do we go? And then one child says, I don't know what to do. I don't understand. But how do you add fractions with different denominators? I don't get it. And you say, well, why don't you think you get it? So well, when I was talking a lot to Tommy, OK, so you're talking a lot. So how can we fix that? Well, I'm not going to sit with Tommy tomorrow, or I'm going to tell Tommy that if he talks to me anymore, that I have to move. He said, well, that's really good. Because actually that's, that's, that's a skill that you need. Like if something's impeding on your chance of becoming a growth, you know, having motivation growth and all of those things that you need. If something's impeding on that, you need to speak up. And so rather than the teacher going separate, I'll fix this problem and band-aid it. You really want the kids to do that. And so those skills are developed uh, organically rather than you trying to teach? Because you, you can't just teach empathy. I can't stand here and say, let me give you a lesson on empathy because it's not
1: something you can learn. It's something that you live
0: and you you, you
1: get through experience. I want to get your thoughts on this, Gavin. So I think when I was in primary school, in high school, I felt like, you know, I always came home and said, mom, the teacher's picking on me. The teacher's always, you know, I'm always the chosen one now and sort of, looking back you know i did probably talk a lot i probably was distracted but i think at the same time maybe i was like craving attention from the teacher it was probably like a mix of all things but it was just weird how consistently every second year that the teacher that i had would be like picking on me and obviously at the time like if (laughs) i'm looking back it it was probably not the teacher's fault maybe i was sort of um distracted and talking all the time and distracting other kids but why do you think i felt like i was always getting picked on well,
0: put it, put it like this. Um, children and, and adults are the same to some degree, but children want to be noticed. And we all want to be noticed like, hey, please notice me. I, I'm in the class. of 30 of the kids. Can you notice me? Um, and if a child like yourself, let's say you were talking and the teacher said, hey, Tommy, you're talking. Please stop. In your mind, you're like, the oh, teacher noticed me. She said my name. Uh, so I'm just going to keep doing this because when I do this, I get noticed and then I'm validated and that's my position. I'm the talker or I'm the class clown. She says, don't be the class clown. When she says, don't be the class clown, you're like, that's what I am now. I'm the class clown. So I'm going to continue being this because every time I do it, I get noticed. Now, from a teacher's perspective, what you have to do at that point is this. You have to just be really, really strong. Ignore that urge to pull up that child for doing the wrong thing and then mean it they do something that's remotely correct. So let's say if I was your teacher and you were talking, I'd be trying really hard to ignore you when you were talking. But then I would see that you'd written a letter F, and it was the perfect F. Maybe it wasn't. Who cares? If it was the perfect F. I'd say to everyone, I've done this. So this is why I'm telling you firsthand. Everybody, put your pencils down. This is an emergency. I've been a teacher 20 years, and that is the greatest F I've ever seen everybody let's have a look at this and i show it everybody give him a round of applause and the kid with all the clapping like this you'd sit down you were slightly embarrassed and at the end of the lesson i pull you aside i say, can i have a quick word of you tommy and say tommy look that was amazing that letter f is probably the best thing i've ever seen in my life and tommy's like I said you see i'd love to see more acts like that tomorrow i wonder if you can continue i'm be like yes Gavin, i'll definitely do that because suddenly you've been noticed for doing something right And all you have to do then is build upon that and build upon that, and suddenly this child becomes a child who goes, when I do things that are correct, or when I want to try my best, I get noticed now. And we we fall into a trap of trying to pull everything up and noticing all the wrong things, and children just go, that's my identity, So I am. I get noticed for doing the wrong thing. I'm the class clown, I'm the bully, I'm the one who's silly, I'm the one who says rude words. You just have to try to do the best. And I've worked in some horrible classrooms, harrowing, hardcore, and where is terrible, and... You can turn it around, but it takes a lot of effort, and you have to be a—you know—you have to have a lot of passion and energy. You can't just—it's easy to send someone out, isn't it? Out, you're doing the wrong thing, but that's a failure. You failed at that point. Your your objective as a teacher is to not send them out and say, "I'm going to—I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you over the line." I had a boy once in the class, and he said, "I said, you know, what do you want to be when you're old?" He goes, "I want to be a gangster." And he was only eight. I said, "Why?" He goes, "I hate the police. I just want to get the police." All he wanted to be the gangster. Anyway, I bumped into him a few years later. And uh, he was like, Hi, Mr. McCormack. He's a man now. He had a mustache. I was like, Hey, hey, what are you doing? You know, you're a gangster? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm actually an accountant. He said, You know, um, you somehow made me love maths. I don't know how you did it. You know, this boy was from a broken home. He wanted to be a gangster so he could get the police. And suddenly he's an accountant because in mathematics, I remember noticing him for the littlest thing i can't remember what it was but we won him over and he got addicted to that feeling of like oh my god like i'm getting noticed to do doing something right This is brilliant uh,
1: but it took a bit of effort you know it's, it's not easy to, to pull that off that's super cool and like now i'm trying to think because you know i have two younger sisters and sort of going into business and sort of um doing my own thing like i'm always putting a lot of not pressure but i'm always like you know sisters like just think of me you guys need to read more books you guys should be looking for internships you guys should volunteer you guys should you know create tiktok accounts and talk about what you're studying in university and then it comes off as i'm constantly lecturing them and i could see it on one year out the other hey just think can you start you know taking mom to the uh, autometrist since you know that's where you're studying and i'm um, so sort of getting busy but it doesn't click when i tell them to do things and I've slowly approached to sort of teaching by example, doing it myself, but that sort of doesn't really do too much because then I'm just going to be taking my mum to the doctor for the rest of my life. And then I'm going to be able to pick up the risk. And I can't tell them to do so because when I tell them to do it, it feels like a chore. What's your yeah. advice, Gavin?
0: Well, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, I'm also guilty of that uh, for people that I know and, and friends and family that I often, you know, I've got two brothers too and I'm, I'm the same and I often catch myself lecturing them. So, I mean, I think the point is, you know, no one's perfect, you know, and you're trying your best to have a positive influence, um, but ultimately everyone's their own person, and I think you have to let them find their own way, ultimately. Because imagine if someone told you, you know, early on what to do, you probably would have not done it. You have to find your own way and and see what works for you. What works for you doesn't work for them. Uh, But ultimately everyone finds their niche in the end. But I guess the... The objective is to be as supportive as possible, you know, when those when those people try those things that are new. I, I know, interesting enough, you know, the failure aspect of everything is so important, right? Because I, there's a little boy at school once, and you know, I said to them, "We're studying volcanoes," and I did this talk about Vesuvius, and I was very inspirational because I'd been there, and I was like, "Here's a picture of me at Vesuvius." Like, oh my god, he's been to Vesuvius! It's unbelievable. I told him about the eruption and Pompeii and all of that stuff. And said, off you go, guys. You can represent your research in any way that suits you. And a little boy he decided to build a volcano out of papier-mâché and label it with labels. It was going to be beautiful. It was going to erupt in front of the whole class. He had a plan. I was very excited by this project because, you know, he was going to have a lot of learning about this. But I saw him mixing the papier-mâché, and there was too much water compared to glue. And, you know, there has to be a ratio for it to really gel. And I saw him mixing. I thought, he's doing it wrong. I should go over and tell him because he's about to spend – Five hours—it's going to be a total failure—and I had to really restrain myself and not do that. So he mixed the water and the glue, he put it all. Happy mache, had a little group, and the whole thing collapsed. He was crying. He said, "Gavin, it's a failure. I can't show the class." You know, I said, "Well, you know, what do you think went wrong?" He said, "Well, I didn't read the instructions you gave me." I said, "Well, where do you think you missed out?" And he said, oh, I, I didn't put enough glue in. It's just too much water," and so he was really upset. I said, what do you want to do? And he goes, I want to start again. And we started again. Took another week and he built this volcano and he built it right. And he erupted it from the class and everyone clapped. And we talked about resilience and determination, perseverance, persistence. And uh I had to let him fail. Like he had to let that happen. If I'd have jumped in, he would have he would have never learned that valuable lesson. But you know, it's like when you buy something from IKEA. I'm, a, I'm a guilty for this. You buy it, I get the instructions, throw them in the bin and try and build it myself and there's all these screws left over. I'm like, oh my God, maybe these are spares. Or maybe they'll give me extra ones and throw these in the bin as well. And then i put the stuff on the wardrobe, it all collapses. And I'm like, oh God, I am never ignoring the instructions again. You know, it's that kind of thing. You only do it once. You have to let it happen. So, you know, with your sisters and with anyone else, you know, you have to let that occur in front of you
1: for it to actually be a learning curve. That's a good tip and I think I'm going to really try that I think yeah it's hard not to catch a mistake when you're sort of seeing it right in front of your eyes and I think just letting them do their thing hopefully sort of yeah I think it's much better than trying to expend energy and try to tell them what I think is right and you're right each person is their own yeah I
0: completely agree but it's hard you know it's not it's not easy to see someone that you uh, care about making a mistake that you know is happening I um, mean, even though I pull it off and learn something new, you never know. I mean, look at Jeff Bezos. Before he built Amazon, he built Pets.com. He spent a billion dollars building it. It was a total flop. But he learned how to build a website after that. And then he's got it right now.
1: So <laughs> whether you like it or not, it's successful. Gavin, tell me about the transition from becoming a teacher to then becoming a principal. Like, are you now sort of teaching us? Tell me about that transition. What is it like being a principal? Because now looking back looking at the principal of my high school, it feels like you're sort of running a business. You have all these teachers and you have to manage sort of your finance and the budget the school has. You're sort of getting... It's like, yeah.
0: Well, exactly. It is a business, of course. Schools are businesses. They have budgets and funding and, uh, you know, enrollments and teachers to manage and contracts to sign and, you know, government funding to access and regulations coming out of your ears. I mean, in a given school, there's about 177 school policies from toilet policy to nappy-changing policy. And look, I have a preschool. So just add on another 200 policies on top of that. Um, And then, you know, you have to manage all of that, which is paperwork and bureaucracy, which is one thing. And number two, you've got your parents. You know, they're your customers. They want a service. They want their child to be educated in a certain way. And if it doesn't go right, you need to deal with that and, you know, manage that, which is tricky. And you've got your teachers, um, which if you hire correctly and you trust them, no problems. If you trust your teachers, you know, if you try to micromanage them and tell them how to teach, you lose all of that magic. You say, look, you know, I know you're a good teacher. I'll let you go with it. You know, I know it says teach vertebrae in the curriculum. You teach it how you want. And I've done that. Had a, a guy at school uh, and it says vertebrae. In the curriculum, it tells, it tells you, it prescribes you, you will say this, you will do this, you will give this worksheet they will go onto this website. He was like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. I'm a trained chef. So he brought in a rainbow trout into school and he had it under a little blanket on the table. And the kids are sitting around the group and he said, Today we're going to learn about vertebrae. And the kids are like, Wow. And he goes, Under this cloth, I have a vertebrae. And the kids are like, Cool. What is it? Anyway, he reveals this full rainbow trout, massive, you know, all glistening with its eye and everything. And he says to the kids, You can touch it if you want, you know. And they were like, Can I touch the eyeball? Oh, yeah. And they were touching the eyeball and feeling the scales. And he taught them about vertebrae, but they got to smell a fish and touch it, and their senses were all, you know, heightened. So they're all excited. But to turn it even, even better, he said, now, let's go to the kitchen. We're going to gut this fish. So he gutted it in front of the kitchen, and he looked at all the intestines and the organs, and he put them, you know, to one side. And he goes, now we're going to fill it, it. and we're going to cook it, and you're going to eat it. We're going to have fish tacos. The kids kitchen's like, oh, my God, Really? So they cooked it and they ate it and they tasted it. Some kids didn't want to taste it. They recycled the bits that they were going, that they could reuse. They took the bones, they put them in the class and kept them as something to study. You know, nothing went to waste. It was all recycled or eaten. Uh, And uh, there was a lot of learning there. You know, a lot of learning. Talked about indigenous culture and how they would fish and how they would make sustainable choices with fishing. Anyway, if I'd have told him, you will teach from the document that I wrote, it never looked like that. It never, my lesson never looked as good as that. So you trust them. When you trust them, those kind of really cool things happen. Um, and then you've got the kids at the end of the day, you know, who are the, uh, the end goal here. And being a principal, you know, you have to come up with big ideas about changing the world and how you're going to run your school and how to have projects that are going to touch lives around the world with other people, you know, those kind of things. Very important. Um, and, yeah, of course, it's, uh, it's a tricky situation going from teacher to principal, but... Um, you know, the, it's a 24-hour job. There's no question about that. You've got a lot of responsibility. But the reality is you've got a lot of people sitting in front of you who you can um, take on the journey with you. So, you know, over the last five years, I've built 10 schools in the Himalayas, a couple of big libraries. Uh, I run two teacher training centers in Nepal, one in, in Bagbazar, in Tiger Market, and one down in Bottle on the Indian border. i built all of these, and they're all running – And I've been able to do that because I've been able to say to my community, Hey, everybody, I'm going to build a school in the school holidays in Nepal. I need money, books, toys, games, materials. Can you bring them in? Parents are like, Gavin, we've got it covered. And in comes this flood of assistance. And the kids are all making stuff to go in the school. And you pack it all up, fly to the Himalayas, build a school, put all the stuff in, come back to school, and say to the kids in the community, Look what we did. Look what we did together. And they're all like, oh, we want to do it again. You know, and I think last year I took all my teachers with me. I said, come on, we're all going. So we all flew to the Himalayas together to a community that I know very well. And we built a very big school for about 500 children. And, you know, it was the greatest bonding experience of our lives. And, uh, you know, you have that, not uh, the word isn't power. The word is influence. You have that influence to not just change the kids lives, but change the community's perspective on what they can actually do in the world. So
1: pretty amazing. That's so cool. Last question, Gavin, I think I love your passion. Like I was listening to one of the podcasts and you're talking about how you really want to change the world. And by changing the world, it starts by, you know, educating children from the age of zero to 10 to 12. And, you know, you sort of A lot of those kids are going to go grow up and do big things. And you have this major ambition and you're sort of setting up schools. You're sort of really scaling this out. You're really scaling education, set up schools and really growing this. Tell me about this ambition uh, and what's the plan for it? And It's super inspirational just to hear. So it sounds really egotistical and grandiose and kind of whimsical to
0: say, I want to change the world, which you know, um, it sounds, you know, it makes me want to vomit in my own mouth a little bit just saying it. Um, but the reality is that it's, it is it is a possibility, you know, and it doesn't matter how much you change your world. I mean, all, this podcast is changing the world. Someone's going to listen to this and go, you know what, I'm going to change the way I run my classroom now. I'm going to let the kids sit where they want, like don't. Achieved, you know, like big tick. Something's changed, so you change the world a little bit. Um, it's where you, you make a difference somewhere. The butterfly effect goes on and on and on. Um, and so, you know, education to me is something different than passing exams, learning about, you know, how to learning how to get facts into your brain and distribute them back out into a piece of paper. It's just, it's just wrong. It's okay, but. This is 21st century. If I want, i just ask Siri. She'll tell me every single breed of crab in the world immediately. I don't need to listen to a teacher talk for two hours in front of the class doing that. We're in the modern age now. And so it's about, there's a few prongs to this. Number one, it's about, you know, I've gathered a lot of followers online, as you have it too. So using that following for good. i giving everything away. I just give everything away. I make a resource. And say, there you go, everyone. Take it. And everyone's like, oh my God, is, he, is it really for free? Of course it's for free. Off you go. And, it's, you know, I put a document out two weeks ago, 150,000 people downloaded it. So in my brain now, it's sitting on 150,000 desks in 150,000 schools. And it's all about essential skills. It was a calendar, a yearly calendar for essential skills. So in my brain, there's 150,000 people going, hmm, I'm going to run that calendar in my school this year. You know, whether it happens or not, that's, that's enough. That's good. You know, it's, but to have several prongs to this, you know, I've been a writer for a few years writing children's books. And the idea was they'll sit in libraries and they're all about love, empathy, compassion, kindness. So kids will read them and go, ah, I'm going to go sit with a lonely child on the playground because I know what they're going through because this book's about that or oh, this book's about kindness. So that's that. And then the Building Schools in the Himalayas was about um, empowering teachers in some of the poorest countries to think about education differently because every teacher has 30 kids in front of them. So if they're a different teacher, the students are going to be different learners and they're different graduates. They'll go out with empathy, compassion, love, understanding, confidence, resilience, persistence, and that could go on forever. So they will get the exponential growth of that is just enormous. And then you add on to that the fact that you've got a following online and you do talks at conferences and podcasts like this and Maybe 1,000 people listen to this. And so they're going to tell their friends, by the way, how do you set up your classroom? I heard this guy saying that there's four types of learners. And do you know about parallel learning? No, I do, Barbara. Tell me. Oh, my God. And you know, suddenly it, it gets out of control if you do the numbers. And I don't think it's very hard to change the world if you're going down the right route. You've got purpose, intention. You know, you've got a, a direction. Um, but what I've done this year is done something uh, which I think is probably going to be mind-boggling the way that the the world of education is going to run um we're starting to think about um scaling empowerment for students this year so i'll give you a quick synopsis of the story in my school i had these four girls in my school and they were in year six and uh, i always say to the children you know if you've got a dream you come to my office and we'll try to make it true and these four girls came to my office and they said gabby yeah, we I mean, we want to run our own charity like you do. And I said, okay, tell me about it. And they said, well, we're studying Burma in, in class. We're studying continents. And we got them to Burma. And we, we understand that there's by the way, these girls are 10, just to give you some perspective. Um uh, this Rohingya Muslim is being persecuted there and they're coming to Australia as refugees and we want to help them. I said, look, that's a that's a big dream and it's good, but how are you gonna do it? And they had this plan. They said, Gavin, we wanna have a bake sale at school. We want to raise money. With the money, we want to buy some backpacks from Kmart. Then we want to give the backpacks to the families at home. We want to get them to fill them up with pencils, toys, rulers, dictionaries, umbrellas, whatever it is, bring them to school, and we want to get them to Rohingya the Muslims when they arrive here uh, on a refugee boat. I said, this is golden. So they did this thing. Bank sale, money, $500, bought the backpacks, put them out, given to the families, filled them up, brought them in, collected them. I said, now, we've got the backpacks, so what do we do now? And They said, oh, we'd like to um, give them to an organization that can help us. Well, do you know any? So we've done our research, and there's two. There's this one, and there's this one. We want to call them. So of course you can. You know, you can use the telephone. These girls attend. So they call the CEOs of these organizations. The CEOs come into school, and the girls interview these CEOs to see which one deserves the backpacks. So I sat there and watched these 10-year-olds interview grown executives in school. And I said to the girls at the end, sir, which one have you chosen? And they said, we're choosing the House of Sakina because it's run by women and we're women. (laughs) I was like, okay, I'm not going to argue with that. So they gave it to these, they said to the House of Sakina, please come and collect your 150 backpacks. So they came to school and they took them off. And then the magic happened. The refugees arrived in Darwin and the House of Sakina was there to hand them these backpacks. All 140 of them. And I got a video. I get tingles on my spine when I say this. I got a video. And I got the girls in the office all standing behind me. And I said, girls, you've only gone and done it. And I pressed play. And these refugee girls, their the and dads of being persecuted and maybe even being killed, were sitting there thinking nobody knew who they were. Nobody cared. And then they were handed a backpack to some girls who had no idea who they were, organized, took them a turn, and they opened them. And as they were opening them, these big smiles came on these refugees' girls' faces. And I turned around to the girls behind me, and they were all crying. And then I was crying. And I said, are you okay? And they said, we want to do it again. You know, and then and they were off. They were off. And, and, and that's it. Like, that's it. That's what it's all about. Like, those girls have changed their whole perspective on life. You know, when they did their graduation speech, they said, I want to work for charities. I want to change the world. I want to help people who are less fortunate. It wasn't, I want to get rich. I want to buy a mansion. I want a Lamborghini. It was all about helping other people. And so there's four girls there who are going to go out and be four adults who are going to be four leaders in the community. And they're going to have influence over the people. And so you might not see the change that you've created, but it will happen. It just takes a bit of time. You know, it says something like, um, happiness is when you, um, you know, the acorns you plant in the ground, you may never get to sit under the shade of the oak tree but just know that somebody one day will sit in that shade. And it's that, you know, that it's not about you getting the gratification saying, I need it to happen in my lifetime. It's just knowing that it's happening, you know, slow and steady wins the race. So as long as you've got lots of things going on around the place and you're trying your best, look, you know, you can put your head on the pillow at night and go to sleep easily.
1: That's so amazing, Gavin. I really appreciate the time today. I think I just love your passion and what you're doing it comes with like true amazing intentions and you truly want to help and I think that mixed with your sort of ambition to really make change like it's possible and I, I don't think a lot of teachers have that mindset and then have that sort of um, like, you're really like, I want to change the world. And, and it's possible. You just, you know, you have to just open your mind up and you're taking so many steps and sort of one step at a time. And by the time you're 100, you probably would have created this massive tsunami that started with sort of pebbles in the pond.
0: Yeah, no, and it's true, you know. And, and you know, there's a lot of a um, lot of things we can do. I recently put out a, um, a Google form online. In September, I wanted to have one week of education for the entire planet for free. So I was like, nonstop, 24 hours a day for five days, it's going to be online education for free. And I needed 240 teachers around the world to give me one hour of time on Zoom. So I put it out there, 14,000 teachers filled it in and applied. And I picked 240. And from September the 20th till September 25th, school was online nonstop. All day, every day, across the world. And the most amazing part of that was I went to every lesson. I had like 10 laptops on the go and 15 iPads in my house. It was craziest week. But there was a guy in Delhi. His name was um, Man, And he was teaching landscape painting with Man. It was just him in his bedroom with an overhead camera. And he was painting a landscape. And I looked in the Zoom. 13,000 people were in the waiting room. And there was 1,000 people in the class. So, you know, <laughs> uh, all, all they had to do was give one hour, but the world was like free education online. I mean, no one had to pay anything. All they had to do was give one hour of our time. Um, it's, not, it's not hard. You know, it's not hard. It just takes someone to put it out there and say, come on, guys, let Get this going, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm 43. I've got a you know a few more years left in me yet, but I'm not going to give up. But I hope you don't mind. I wanted to just put a shout out. I've just written this book, uh, and it's just it's it's on sale in Amazon right now. It's called The Potential Every Child, and basically, it is 100 ways in which parents out there can prepare their children for school and make them independent, so that when they do go to school, all those things we've discussed in the podcast. Um, are doable and manageable because kids have resilience and patience and empathy
1: and understanding and the confidence to try and the resilience to fail and try again most definitely and where can they learn more about you gavin and keep up to date with all the new things they're doing and, and follow you along on your journey uh i have a blog uh
0: GavinMcCormack.com.au. I, i've written about a million words on there uh, and i've i've got a you know a, a, you just google there's lots of places i've got websites all over the place doing different things and you know they're all for free and they're all just to try to assist but yeah look um and if anyone needs anything reach out i always give everything away for free so resources um, curriculums documents policies you know it's all yours just giving a shout but i appreciate you inviting me on here. i know that you've got a very big following and i know that you know um it's uh i just feel humbled that you've invited me onto your podcast so thank you for having me
1: Thank you, Gavin. I really appreciate just your, your energy and your passion and what you're doing for the kids, for the next generation. So thank you so much for spending time to share this. And I think you're right. It's like one teacher can see this, then share it with another teacher, and then that teacher implements it into their class. And then one student really changed because of that new style of learning and that new student then does something massive. It's like, yeah. Thank you so much, Gavin.
0: No, no. My pleasure. Anytime. If you need anything, just give me a shout. It's been an honor to be here. So I appreciate uh, you uh, uh,
1: you taking the time to have me on your show. Most definitely. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. Please check out all Gavin's things. I'll get my team to link everything in the description below. Yeah. Thank you so much for putting in the time to listen to this episode, guys. Peace. Thank you. Bye.